I'm intending to be a little bit more uh, counseling oriented in, the, in this last session. And I've called this Redeemed to what kind of a general title getting us to think a little bit. And uh, so let's turn to Colossians 1. And. Uh, yes. I'm kind of building on what I introduced our conference with in my sermon Sunday and giving you some more of the ideas that have been running through my brain uh, on uh, this issue of the centrality of Christ. Uh, bringing, bringing Christ more into preeminence and, and counseling, uh, but in every aspect of life. In Paul's epistle to the Colossians, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, we'll start. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now in this passage, Paul uh, begins to bring to preeminence the whole idea of, of Christ is, is a bigger picture of redemption of human beings uh, and giving them forgiveness of sins and uh, eternal life. He, he's painting a picture that's grander in a sense than that. He's he begins by making sure we know that Jesus is the creator of everything. And he says visible and invisible. And we know from Hebrews uh, that uh, all the things that are made that we can see were made from things that we cannot see. And uh, he's, there, he establishes, the author of Hebrews, that the invisible world or realm existed before anything visible and of course that's uh, God himself who existed alone uh, and then made obviously invisible things such as angels and uh, perhaps a, a, a sanctuary that was pictured to Moses on the mount of which he saw something and patterned the earthly one after so it's like what what was happening uh, in Leviticus was uh, them making a mirror copy visible of something already present visibly. And that paradigm, that way of thinking, it has affected me in, in the sense that Jesus is, is the thing that holds all of this together. He's the creator of it all and and he is 
the redeemer of it all, the reconciler of it all. And in verse 20, it's Jesus' agenda to reconcile to himself all things. He knows it doesn't say all people, uh, but everything. Everything that God created, and he's given credit for the creation, everything that was made is going to be reconciled to a place where it's the way it should be. And that's what I'm going to talk about, the, the way it should be. Now, most of us that are doing counseling, we're well familiar with Romans 8. And uh, verse 28, most Christians, Christians who don't do any counseling uh, are familiar with the verse if they've been Christians very long because uh, they memorize it. It's a very comforting verse to many people because uh, of the way we understand it. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. And uh, I've, I've had a lot of conversations with people, especially in the counseling room, about that. Let's take a married couple, for example, will sit there and... and They'll tell me all their problems. They'll, they'll agonize over how difficult it is to live with each other or with their kids or with their sicknesses or illnesses or whatever it might be. And I'll stop for a moment when they're, when they're done and, and I'll say, uh, before we talk about what ought to be done or what might be done, or what, I want to just ask you a question, question as, as Christians. Do you believe that somehow God could work this out for good? And almost always the Christians will say, yes. And I say, oh, are you, are you aware of that verse? And they'll say, most of them will say, yeah, yeah. And I say, where, do you know where it is? And many times they'll say Romans 8.28. So I'll take them there. I say, let's, let's turn there and we'll read it together again. I said, now you're telling me you believe that. And they say, yes, we do. I said, well, you know, I'm not quite sure if that promise is for you. I'm not quite sure God will work itself for your good. And they look at me strangely, like, what kind of a person am I? I'm supposed to be a biblical counselor, and they're telling me uh, that they believe the verse, and I'm saying I'm not sure. And I said, well, if you look closely... There are two conditions on this. There are two conditions here. And they look back at the passage and they say, what do you mean? I said, well, it says God will work all things together, all things, all things for the good for, number one, those who love God. I said, now let's settle that right now. Do each of you love God? I mean, do you really love God? And what do all the Christians tell me? They say, yeah. I said, good. We got 50%. Let's go to the next part. I say, uh, are you called according to his purpose? Because it says, who are called according to his purpose. So you've got, you got to tell me that. Are you called according to his purpose? And most Christians look at me with a big question mark on their face. They look at me and say, what do you mean? I say, well, uh, before I tell you what I mean, I'm, I'm asking you, are you called according to his purpose? They say, well, I don't know what you mean. I say, well, what you're telling me is 
you don't really know what his purpose is? Is that what you're saying? You're waiting for me to tell you that it gives me the impression you don't really know what his purpose is. And if you, if you don't know what his purpose is, then how can you be called to it, committed to it? And they start wondering. And I say, well, you know, unless you're called according to his purpose, uh, there's no real guarantee that he's going to work it out for your good. And, he, and they say, well, well how, can we, how can we know what his purpose is? Or they'll say, what do you mean his purpose? His overall purpose or his purpose in this trouble that we're having? Or I said, well, what would you like to work out for good? This trouble that you're having? And they, well, yeah. I said, well, then, well, yeah. <laughs> What's his purpose? And most of us know the answer. I, I tell people, the big mistake is you memorize that verse out of its context. And you should memorize the next verse too, at least, and probably further than that. But what does it say in the next verse? For those he called, those he predestined, to be conformed to the image of his own dear Son. Which means, when it says good in verse 28, that's uh, working all things together for the good, it's directly referenced to verse 29. It's not any good you might think of could happen. It's one specific good that Paul is talking about in verse 28, and he defines it in verse 29. That good is you becoming more like Christ, conformed to the image of Christ. And so every trial that you're going through, every concern that you bring to a biblical counselor, everything you have in your life that's bothering you, uh, you should say, am I called to becoming more like Christ through this? If I'm committed to that, that it's a calling to me. I, I'm called to become more like Christ through this very thing, then I know God will work it out for my good. Because he will make me come, become more like Christ. So it's real easy when you see that. But the bigger picture of that verse is that that's God's purpose in everything. It's God's purpose in everything, being like Christ. Colossians 1 to 8, go back to Colossians 1 to uh, chapter 1, you'll see that that, that was, um, as I think I mentioned before, uh, on Paul's heart when he ministered. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, complete in Christ. And this I toil with, struggling uh, with all this energy that he powerfully works in me. Paul saw his ministry as forming Christ more maturely in people, believers. Evangelizing non-believers so the process of forming them into Christ can begin. Evangelism is, just, as you know, the open door. You've you got to be born again to see the kingdom to walk across the threshold, get in. But the real, the real task is transforming people into Christ copies, imitators of Christ, like Paul talked about himself. Follow me as I follow Christ. Or Ephesians 5.1, Be ye therefore imitators of God, Paul says. The, the, the whole idea is 
reproducing in a visibly manifest way what God is like. Now, I, I, um, I think that's the centrality of all Scripture. I think from Genesis all the way through, that, that's the focus. It underlies every passage like a deep river that runs underneath everything else. It's there. And uh, you can see it pop up in a lot of places. Uh, that's part of what my book's going to do if I get it written, is show some of the pop-ups. But it underlies everything. Now, in, in um, uh, well, I make a statement here. Becoming like Christ is the end goal of all counseling. We're going to get to that in a minute. But it's the center purpose of all, all Scripture. But let's say, why in counseling? Well, think about this uh, logically. If a person has no problems, they'd be a perfect person. Right? They have no problems. They have no problems getting along with anybody else. No problems within themselves. Uh, that's a perfect person. And there's only one perfect person. That's God. So, if you're a counselor and you want to help people get rid of their problems, much as humanly possible, then, then your, your, your goal is to get them to become like God. Because he's, he's the model for a person with no problems, no personal problems. If he has a problem with somebody else, and God does, he has enemies, he knows exactly how to treat and what to do with those people that give him problems, so it's no problem to him because he always can handle it. He's the model for a person who can go through life, so to speak, although his is eternal, from beginning to end, and while there's no beginning and end. So, so God, God is the standard of a, of a perfect person. That perfect person has no problems. Um, and, you know, the scriptures talk about, Matthew 5.40 says, uh, Be perfect, even as I am perfect which often we think about as an impossible task. But that's the standard. That's the goal. And, of course, we're given it positionally in Christ. You know that. But it's still a challenge to us. It's handed to us as a command. And what he's trying to say there, you're supposed to be like me. Be perfect as I am perfect. Be holy as I am holy. Love one another as I have loved you. Do what I do. Be like me. And human beings who are fallen cannot approach that anyway close. So the real hope for people, of course, is evangelism. And biblical counseling is the only uh, only type of counseling that extends that hope to people. Any other kind of counseling, even if it's a Christian person who doesn't open the Bible because they can't, they're working at a place that doesn't allow you to, to talk to people from the Bible. So you do the best you can to love them and give them suggestions. You can see how empty that is because the, there's, there's no open door into uh, where the real hope for change and finding God's likeness uh, other than through Christ. Now, why all of Scripture? 
Well, the purpose of God in the beginning is this is the same thing. Looking in Genesis chapter one, I want to tell you. Um, I want to give you kind of like a a story, if you will, to set a context. Because in verse twenty six, we're we're familiar with uh, God creating man on the sixth day and saying, "Let us." Make man in our image after our likeness. And he issues some uh, uh, commands and some plans for what man will do. And just back up for a moment from that and, and think about the whole week. God, God was all there was. And God is invisible. I'm going to bring the visible, invisible back into this from Colossians. God is invisible. He's content. He's happy. He has no need of anything. That's one of the attributes of God. He, he, a deity. He's independent, self-sufficient. And so God could have gone on forever and ever and never made anything. And it would be... No problem, man. <laughs> it's nothing. I wonder if God's Jamaican. <laughs> no. So, so there's God, and and God decides to make something from Himself. I I think I, it's a guess. It's to share Himself with something other than himself. He creates some invisible things. And sometime after that, he creates visible things. And all these things that he's making are, are obviously, he's the source of it all. It's all coming from him. So all of those things are uh, aspects of his his attributes, all of those things are some mirror reflection of him. They represent him in some way. They reflect him in some way. All of creation on those first five days, you know, the Bible tells us clearly that you can see God when you look at the creation. Romans chapter 1. There's enough evidence there looking at creation. There is no excuse whatsoever. You can see God. You can see His handiwork. And you see, there must be a God. And, he, and it says you can see His almighty power and, and, and some of His attributes in Romans 1. When you look at creation, if you have your scripture glasses on, you know there's a God and you know some things about Him. It's not savingly. We know that. But you can see it. You can see unity, and you can see a lot of diversity. I was looking out at the displays, and I was imagining, you know, there's probably so many different color fruit in nature. There's grapes, and there's red stuff, and they got some of those colors in different displays, and it's beautiful, isn't it? And you just think of putting all, all different kind of color fruit together in, in a display. What an awesome display it is. But God does that all the time in all of creation. And you can see his, his creativity and, and his uh, sense of color and balance as much as he's revealing 
He's revealing something of what he's like in his creation every day and on those first days. But then on the sixth day, he says, let us make man in our image so that man, human beings, from that very point, become the apex of what God's intending to do, and that is make another thing that is that is specifically called to image him and reflect him in ways that the creation cannot do. So they're given different attributes of God. We call them the communicable attributes, communicable attributes in theology. You know, we we can God shares His love with us and through us, and His kindness, His goodness, and the fruit of the Spirit is really nothing more than the communicable attributes of God. And He gives some people gifts and skills and talents. Like uh, some people are are very naturally gifted at, at artistic things, right? And the rest of us, you know, can maybe paint the side of the barn. <laughs> but some are good. And and what, when people are excellent at art and painting, color balance, uh, what is that other than God shares that gift with them that shows what he's like? We we all don't have all those gifts. We just have parts of them. Yeah. <laughs> but human beings were created to image God, reflect God. We're mirrors. We're, we're mirrors. We're created to be mirrors. The, the planet is a mirror. The universe is a mirror. Water is a mirror. Everything's a mirror showing some reflection of God. But when you look in front of a mirror, you know, it, it shows you the image of whatever's standing in front of the mirror. It's not a perfect image. It's always reversed, you know. And uh, if it's a distorted mirror, like in a fun house, it's really a bad image. And if it's an old mirror and tarnished and not polished, it's not a very good image. And when Adam fell, the mirror went bad. It could still show something of what God is like, but the mirror really went bad. And uh, we've had a problem ever since then because there's been a rebellion by the human part of the creation deliberately, uh, which we call sin. Sin is rebellion against God. But I think I think a good definition of sin is this attitude that says, I do not want to image God. I, I am independent. I, I want to take all what God gives me and use it to my glory, to my uh, prosperity, to, to my, develop my kingdom. All my talents, I'll get the praise for it, you know, and not... Not say, look, I am what I am because of what God has done in me. And my job is simply to mirror God in the ways I'm equipped to do. And so what we have then uh, is we have human beings having no interest at all 
in getting to know God so that they can reflect God. And I think that the more I meditate on this, the more I think that the heart of counseling problems is this fundamental identity crisis. And the crisis is people don't want to die to themselves, which is why that's in the Gospels. You know, we're supposed to be dead. Because it's not supposed to be anything about us. We are supposed to be mirrors. So that every time, every time I do anything or you do anything, anything, it should be we are doing the best we can to, to do what we believe God would do. What he'd be like. If, if we're relating to other people, we should relate to other people as Christ would if he was in our skin. Husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church. So the husband thinks of himself as, I, I need to treat my wife like Christ would treat this woman, my wife. If Christ were married to my wife, how would he treat her? How would he talk to her? And I talked about that in the sermon a little bit from the other side. But every Christian, every Christian's obligation is to as accurately as they can represent Christ faithfully in every encounter. Every encounter. And we don't do that. And that's why we have problems. Because we're not perfect. So, we glorify God when we do that. In other words, when we can bring when we can bring an appropriate image or reflection of God into any circumstance, when we're doing it like we think, or as, as we know from the scriptures, that's the only way we'll know for sure what God is like and what he would do. Uh, we've got to get to know the scriptures way better so we get to know God's ways and think God's thoughts after him. Think like God thinks evaluate like God evaluates you know that's what like we said with Jonah that's he really missed it when he when he decided not to have mercy when God was when God was having mercy because in another time justice was appropriate and being on the same page with God means you really you need to know God better than you do and Counselees fundamentally aren't even thinking this way. They're all wrapped in themselves, their own identities, their own needs, and and what they think are their needs, and what other people should do to meet those needs. And it, everybody's on the wrong page. If a husband concentrated on simply representing Christ faithfully to his wife and children, and she always thought, how would Christ in me respond to a man like this that I'm married to? Looking past the flesh and remembering that God is at work in that flesh. It's being transformed. You know. It would change all relationships. And so, I think we need to get people more clearly focused in that direction and, and 
get their hearts pumping at becoming more like Christ. In Luke 3.38, we, we see this idea of imaging God and reflecting God again. Because it's the end of the genealogy of Jesus. And isn't it interesting that um, it says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and then what does it say? The son of God. Do you ever wonder about that language? I remember years thinking about, boy, it's calling Adam the son of God. And all I know is in new Christian, even a Christian for a few, quite a few years, was Jesus is the Son of God. Why is it calling Adam the Son of God? I always thought the Son of God, Jesus Son of God, was a statement about the deity of Christ. You know, that he is the Son of God. And so he's God. But something was wrong with that because Adam is called the Son of God. Now I know that Adam is not deity. Until I began to put this together, and you know what? It was a big clue for me. There's a passage in um, John chapter eight. Uh, take a look at this. List. It's really, <laughs> it's really simple if you see it. Once you see it, at least it was for me. In John eight. Jesus is stirring up a storm with the Pharisees. And uh, he's talking about going away, uh, that he's the light of the world. He's going away and you won't see me. And where I'm going, you can't come. In verse 22, etc. Tells them to, verse 31, abide in my word. You'll know the truth. Truth will set you free. And they say, what? We've never been slave to anybody. How can you say to become free? And so he says some more things. And then he says, I speak of what I have seen uh, with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. And they say, Abraham is our father. And he said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. Which, by the way, if you're connecting the dots, uh, he said that he's, he's speaking what he's heard from his father, and now he's telling them his father is God. But this is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. And they raised the question about... Uh, not being born of immorality, and they claim to have one father, even God. But he says again, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Do you notice what, what his reasoning is in all of this? Um, they're wanting Jesus to identify himself and what his source is. 
they had challenged him, and I've skipped over some of it for the sake of time, but they challenged him to give a, give a witness. Where's, where's a second witness out of all this? You speak of yourself, but, you know, in our business here, we, we need two or three witnesses. <laughs> and his witness is his father in heaven. You know, bring your father here. He said, well, my father's in heaven. So they get into this father thing. And they try to claim Abraham and God is their father. And what does he say? He says, If you were of your father Abraham, you would be like him. You would act like him. You would do what he did. Instead, you you are of your father the devil. Why? Because... You behave like him. You act like him. You hear what I'm saying. You image and reflect him. In other words, there's a, there's a, a basic understanding in Scripture that it's expected that a person will be like their father. It's, it's the expected thing. And we have that in our heads, you know, in our culture. And we, uh, I think all cultures do. We talk about you, you're like your father. Or you, of course, we use it negatively a lot of times. And a lot of times it's true. But we expect people to be resembling their father or their mother. They use that too. But it's the idea. And really that's, that's com- coming from the spiritual understanding that there are really only two, two identities, if I can say it that way. And one is the original, it's God, which everything is supposed to mirror accurately. But since the fall does not. Since the fall, people accurately image the rebellion, the one who said no, the one who said, I will not, Satan. And Satan ever since has been trying to get his creation to deny its real identity and follow him. In an anti-identity, you might say. And if we could get people, including ourselves, to forget about ourselves and just realize that our identity is really lost in Christ and in God. You have to think about this. But if I realize that my job, as I said before, as a Christian, is to accurately represent Christ, who is representing God. By the way, why are we expected to become like Christ? When really, we're supposed to become like God. We're supposed to not become God. That's... That's a mistake people make going into pantheism and stuff. They, they look in creation and they see God and they say, creation is God. Big mistake. It's a mirror. It's not the real thing. <laughs> but but they're close. They see, they see the, the, the connection there somewhat. Now, if, if people like me or love me or appreciate anything I'm doing, then I... Now, I should realize that they must have seen God somehow as I attempted to serve God and minister to them by the power of the Spirit. 
and when I get appreciation or respect or accolades, uh, uh, you know, I, rather than become trifle, I need to say, wow, I was, I was really, for those moments there, being used of God, and God was being actually seen through me and heard through me. And so what I'm hearing in appreciation is their appreciation for God. See, they're, they're glorifying God. And if they're not Christians, they don't know that. And I had to make them aware of that. You know, It's really God who used me. God who uses you. Paul said it, you know, this way, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless, nevertheless I live. But it's not me. It's Christ living in me. And he means it, you know. It, it's nothing weird. It's just, he, he understands, like we need to understand, that really we're out of the picture. Uh, we're not we're not trying to live for ourselves in in acquiring anything or we're 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 moment by moment vessels mirrors to show what God is like to say what God would say to encourage to rebuke whatever is the the appropriate need and to show mercy rather than justice as Jonah didn't do but. But we've got to stay in communion with God, not in some mystic way, but through the scriptures where we study to see how Jesus reacted to people, or he didn't react ever, but, but how he responded, what he said in various different situations, how the Father uh, or Christ in pre-incarnate ways addressed people in the Old Testament. And spent a lot of time going over it, reading it again and again, and thinking about what is God like? What can we discern and be sure of? And get wisdom which shows us in this kind of situation, you, you want to be more merciful. I'm not saying we're, we'd be perfect at it, but, but our passion and our mission is to get to know God and, and uh, be better equipped to be like him. And so he tells us, uh, become like Christ. Become more like Christ. And, and again, why? Because Jesus is the only uh, human person who did it. So the title Son of Man is given, I mean, sorry, Son of God, is given to Jesus Precisely because Adam was the son of God. Adam was the only human being made to image God accurately. And he only did it for a certain period of time. And was it the first day they were made? It's hard to... I've read a lot of different views on that. Hard to know how long he lasted before they ate of the fruit. But Jesus comes... To, to redeem us not just to give us a place in heaven not to not to forgive us of our sins 
the, the whole gospel is not just the short passage that says Christ crucified, dead, buried, rose from the grave. Because I think that the gospel, as we know it, as I mentioned, is really a subset of the purpose of God. Christ came to redeem us, to make man once again able to mirror God. To have the privilege of reflecting God accurately so that God could be seen where he was always invisible. You know, everybody wants to see God, don't they? I mean, a lot of people in this world looking for some experience to see God. And uh, we're supposed to make God visible. And that's what glorifying God is. Glorifying God is making God visible. When God is visible, some aspect of him becomes visible so people can see it. That's what God calls glory. Which kind of glory is you know, seeing God. It's not all of God, it's, but it's, it's some kind of re- revealing of God, not in the revelation type of what today, the only revelation of Scripture today, but I mean, when, when God is manifested or seen in some aspect of his, of his being, that it produces a sense of weight, you know, that people take seriously, this, this is awesome. This is really, uh, needs to be considered seriously. That's a glorification of God. God. Something of God has passed through the veil of the invisible and come into the visible realm. And nobody has a higher calling than we do. Nobody can do that for each other, for the non-Christian world, but us people. If we're going to be faithful, we're going to look at um, the scriptures so that we can know how we to, how we are to live and to recognize the, the privilege we have. It's a, it's a privilege to show somebody what God is like. And it's extremely humbling <laughs> that God would choose you and I to do that. Well, I've got something here about hermeneutics. Uh, uh, I mentioned... Uh, before in a couple places that I read a book recently that's been a bestseller for a couple of years it's called Love and Respect have you heard of it? it's by uh, Emerson Egridge and uh, popular book and so I read it and uh, there's some good things in it, good comments that were made but the, the premise underneath it all was that uh, Husbands need to love their wives because, and here was his theology, uh, God knows wives need love. And so to meet the need of the wife, God commands the husband to love the wife. And God commands women to reverence and respect their husbands because God knows men need respect. So the motivation... Uh, to obey those commands is because uh, we we're, we're told that men need respect and, and women need love. And all you have to do is come to the conclusion that your uh, partner doesn't need respect. He's too proud right now as he is. 
and you lose your motivation, you know. And uh, but how would he, how do you judge whether his his uh, you look at the passage and it says husbands love your wives, Christ loved the church, and that the land wives submit to your husband and later reverence your husband. It doesn't tell you why the commands are there, so you speculate why those commands are there. And his mind operates from his psychological training, providing the assumption and the speculation. But when you know that God's purpose in everything is forming Christ, because Christ is, because Christ is the exact representation of God. He's the exact manifestation, as it says in Hebrews 1. He's the perfect mirror image of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You, if you look at me, Jesus was saying, you're looking in a mirror and you're seeing the reflection of the Father. And I'm a perfect mirror. No spots, no wrinkles, no wrinkles. It's all shined up. You can't miss it. The fullness of the Godhead in Him, we only have parts and pieces, you know. But this tells us that God gave me a command to love my wife and it has nothing to do with what my wife needs at all. It's I need to become like Christ. I need to mirror God. And God loves that way. And so I'm giving, I've given an object, uh, my wife, in a covenant relationship uh, to love like God covenantly not covenantly loves his people. It, it's the motivations for me. The command is for me, not for my wife. See, I, I, you know this for, for sure. If if I don't love my wife like I'm supposed to, is that going to stop her from becoming like Christ? No. In fact, God promises to use my stubborn rebellion against that command to make her more like Christ. And she's not commanded to submit or reverence me or respect because I have this deep need to be respected. No, it's because she needs to become more like Christ. And Christ is the model of how to be submissive because there's submission mutually in the Trinity. Jesus submitted to the Father. There's some aspect of God and some aspect of the Trinity that is seen in our relationships if we understand that that is the model we're mirroring. So as an individual, we're focused on mirroring Christ as uh, the only human who successfully imaged God. But in our relationships as Christians, my wife and I together can show the Trinity as we serve in leadership and in submission, how how we can give some picture of God to people as a couple that makes them become aware of something Trinitarian. And certainly every local church filled with Christians as they endeavor to keep the unity of the bond of peace amidst the diversity of gifts and talents, or as Philippians says it, uh, make my joy complete by having the same mind one toward another. The church, churches can begin to show what the Trinity looks like 
as it lovingly submits mutually and, and harmonizes and has one purpose and one focus and serves each other, uh, seeing Christ in each other, seeing God in whatever best ways we can do at showing what God is like. To me, to me, this is this is what I've come to in the last two or three years. It's getting clearer and clearer in focus, um, and uh, it affects counseling seriously. I mean, it's, it it really blows psychology out of the water totally. There's nothing nothing there that touches what this touches. It's all about Christ, totally. Christ being seen in everything is the purpose of everything. Christ pulling it all together, and Christ's purpose was to show God. And we're we're on the same page if we see it, give ourselves to it. So, the Trinity um, in groups, Christ in individuals. We're just, I guess, to, to end the question and end the talk, um, we're redeemed. To be mirrors. We're redeemed to become mirrors once again. Like Adam was. And he was called the Son of God. Because he he could do it. Of course he saw God, you know. I believe you believe that was pre pre incarnate appearance of Christ walking with Yeah, Adam in the garden? I do. Yeah. But I mean that one in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Heard the sound. Huh? Heard the sound that didn't walk in. There had to be a physical appearance of God. And it's always Jesus that gets the assignment. So I'm convinced they they were talking with Jesus to him. Yeah, he was the Word. And the Son of God. Yeah. Given a name. You're right. Questions? Well, it's just that um, it's amazing how the, what husbands are commanded to do and what we struggle with the most. And how women are commanded to do. It's easier for women to love than And respect is difficult for them. Men are selfish and self-motivated individuals, so it's helpful for us to be sacrificial. It's amazing how our sin natures truly battle with those two commandments, only from from that point. Jay, why don't you join us up here? Join us up here a little bit. You've got that one warm. You want to comment on Charles? No, no. You, you, it's your your talk. No, it, well, there's some things that we got, we'd have to sort through. There, um, you got the fallen state of people, and I think there's a mixture of that. You know, what's natural? What's fallen? What's unnatural? You know, there's two naturals in the Bible. There's the natural man as as he's born in sin, but Paul appeals to uh, uh, 
the other natural man when he's making his case against homosexuality. He says it's against nature. Well, Paul's talking about natural men prior to the fall. So there's there's a natural man and there's a a natural man after. So it depends on which one is. Anyway, yeah, we have we have challenges as husbands as husbands and wives, but I think. I think the, the essence of, of the, you know, think about this too. There's many definitions for sin. You know, theologians will tell you about four or five different Greek words or whatever, and they all have, you know, literal. But the the one I like the best is we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God because now. I understand glory to mean manifesting God in the visible in some way that he some attribute or some aspect of God is seen and it's impressive uh, so that I take it to be my assignment in glorifying God is to be like God would be all the time in my walk of life in my sphere of acting that out so so anytime Anytime I'm not doing that, if I'm having a 10-minute discussion with someone and, and two of those minutes I got into self and was more concerned about impressing the person with my wit or cracking a joke, you know, or something that was off, off task, uh, then I, I fell short of glorifying God. I fell short of the glory. You know what I mean? I, I took took out of manifesting what God would do, I took a part unto myself and I did not glorify God. I fell short. And when you understand sin is any falling short of being just like Christ would be right there in that situation, I'm, I'm broken over because I sin way far often than I thought I did, you know. I mean, I just, I'm more convicted than that's what Puritan preached to me, you know. I mean, just <laughs> just by that definition. So um, I don't know what I was going to say past that, but that's as far as.